You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We turn now in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. Gospel of John, chapter 7. And we're going to be looking today at verses 37 through 39. John chapter 7. And let's bow to ask God's blessing upon our time as we study. Our Father, we turn to your word because we believe it to be the truth and the light, and it is a perfect revelation of who you are and all that you have for us. It is sufficient for all of life and godliness, and our desire is that you would meet our spiritual hunger for your word this morning and that you would quench our spiritual thirst for truth this morning, that we might walk away from here, conform to the image of Christ, that you would truly, indeed, by your word, bind together your people as we focus on the truth. May our hearts be joined together in love for it and affection for it and obedience to it. We pray that you, O Spirit of God, would aid us and assist us in this, for we need your help in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our God is a compassionate God and a long-suffering God and a merciful God. And that is his nature, and that is his character. And when the book of human history is done being written, one of the things that is going to stand out over all of human history are the mercies and the long-sufferings and the compassions of God. Human history will be marked or sprinkled with God's judgments from time to time, because they are, but God's dealings with us is not going to be in human history marked primarily by wrath and judgment, but by his mercy and his compassion and his grace. That's not to say that justice will be denied. It won't. It is being delayed at this point. And every sinner who is able to sin without immediately feeling the wrath and consequences, both temporal and eternal, of that sin is enjoying the mercy and compassion of God. That is why uh, episodes like, for instance, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 strike us as so unusual. We look at somebody who is struck down and killed because of one lie. They told one lie. We look at that and we think, how harsh is that? Is it really harsh? It's not harsh, is it? It's just. It's righteous. It's holy. We're surprised by that because we take for granted the mercy that is extended to every sinner who lies and isn't struck down immediately in an Ananias and Sapphira type fashion. Really, we should be surprised that every sinner who lies doesn't have befall them the same type of judgment that Ananias and Sapphira got. That every act of lust and blasphemy and hatred and anger and gossip and slander and everything else that happens that sinners do is not immediately met with that type of judgment. But we see the judgments of God as being so out of the ordinary, so wrong, so harsh, so stern. And really they're not. They're not at all. We have come to enjoy God's mercies and delayed judgment so much that when we actually see a judgment come because of a sin... We think it's harsh, but that just shows you how much we take for granted the mercy of God. It's almost as if we think that every shit sinner should be able to sin with impunity without experiencing any judgment or wrath of God. Do you realize that the, the haunting question of the Old Testament in the Psalms and in the prophets was not, why is God so harsh and angry and judgmental towards sinners? You understand that that was not the concern of the prophets and the Psalms? You know what it was? Why does God delay to judge the unrighteous? 
How is it, O Lord, that you can look upon sin and not act? That's the question of Habakkuk. That's what the Psalms were about. How long, O Lord, will you delay taking vengeance for your namesake? And the psalmists and the prophets cried out and said, where is the justice of God? And people began to say, why is it that the wicked prosper? Why is it that the the impious and the unrighteous and the rebellious do not experience the judgment of the justice of God? Even the Old Testament was marked by the compassions and the mercies of God sprinkled by an occasional judgment to remind us that we ought not to take those mercies and those compassions for granted because our God is a compassionate God. Jesus, being the image of the invisible God, being God in human flesh, God manifest in the flesh, in Him all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form, we would come to expect that we would see the same thing in Jesus that we see in God in the Old Testament. And we do. Because Jesus is the incarnation of the Old Testament God, we see in Jesus warnings of judgment and acts of compassion, like His attitude toward the disciples. Jesus suffered long and was compassionate to the disciples who were weak in their faith and ignorant and lacking understanding of spiritual truth and didn't get it and made foolish decisions and said foolish things, Peter being the chief of them, those disciples acted like that, and yet you see Jesus putting up with and tolerating and suffering long with those foolish and ignorant disciples. And I point that out not to make us think that we are better by comparison, because I can guarantee you that if you were among those 12, you would have done the exact same thing that they did, probably worse. I would have been worse. If you think Peter said foolish things, I tell you what, if I were written in the text of Scripture, I would have been the chief of fools. But Jesus suffered long under that. Not only that, but he suffered long under the hostilities of men. Hebrews 12, verse 3, Consider him who endured such hostility by sinners. And he put up with their unbelief and their rank hypocrisy and their blasphemies against his name and their, their lack of faith. And he put up with their arguments and their insults and them constantly slandering him. He endured and suffered long under that. And one of the most gracious examples of the grace of Christ, one of the most striking examples of his grace, is the invitations that he gives throughout the gospel records. And we've seen a number of these in the Gospel of John. To the rank-and-file sinners like his disciples back in John chapter 1, verse 43, Jesus simply said to them, follow me. To the self-righteous Pharisee, Nicodemus, who came to him by night, Jesus said to him, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. To the immoral, adulterous, idol-worshiping, ignorant woman at the well, Jesus said, Everyone who thirsts of this water, drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Then to the hostile Jews who tried to kill Him in John chapter 5, Remember what Jesus said, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. And then to the uncommitted followers in John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life and he who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. All of those gracious invitations. And here we have in John chapter 7, another gracious invitation. John chapter 7, verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, 
because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now that is an amazingly gracious offer when you and I consider the context. And why is that? Because chapter 7 begins with a plot to kill Jesus. And then all the way through chapter 7, we see these failed attempts to seize him, to thwart him, to insult him, to argue with him, to seize him again, to kill him. That's what chapter 7 is all about. And in the midst of all of that, to the very people who were seeking his life, he makes this gracious offer. If you thirst, come to me. And the one who comes to me and drinks out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That is a wonderfully gracious offer, is it not? To those who hated him and were seeking his life, and trying to kill him, trying to seize him, no man was able to do that because his hour had not yet come. I want you to make, as we, as we begin verses 37 through 39, we're going to make quickly three observations of this entire text before we jump into the particulars. First, we notice the timing of this invitation, the timing of it. It's in verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. This is the last day of the feast. Now, You might remember that the other dialogue that we've looked at in John chapter 7 was not the last day of the feast. It was midway in the feast. That's when Jesus went into the temple and started to teach, halfway through the feast. So there is a separation of a couple of days between verse 36 and verse 37. John skips from verse 36 to 37. He skips a couple of days and brings us to the end of the feast and this gracious invitation of Christ. The second thing we'll notice is that the invitation of verse 37 and 38 is followed by an interpretation, and it's a divinely inspired interpretation. John tells us what it is that Jesus was speaking of in verse 39 when he says, This he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So that's John's interpretation of Jesus' invitation. So here's what we do when we have a situation like this. We have an invitation that Jesus has given, and then John says, You are to understand it in this way. So here's what we do. We look at the interpretation of verse 39, and we say we are going to now deal with verses 37 and 38, in light of how John tells us we are to understand this. So even though the ministry of the Spirit of God was yet future to Jesus and to those who listened here, the ministry of the Spirit of God was yet future, we're going to understand what Jesus says in light of what Jesus was pointing forward to, and that is the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to the third general observation, and that is the mention of the Holy Spirit. The mentions of and the teaching on the Spirit of God is one of the things that sets the Gospel of John apart from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We have more teaching on the Holy Spirit in John's Gospel than you have in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and probably in all three of those Gospels combined. Now, it's not that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were unaware of the ministry of the Holy Spirit or didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. It's just that from John's vantage point, he sees John is a Trinitarian book, remember? So we have the Father being spoken of, we have the Son being manifested in John, and John doesn't want us to just think there are two. He brings in the Holy Spirit, and he teaches us that all three of these persons are divine persons. Most of John's teaching on the Holy Spirit comes in chapters 13 through 17, that upper room discourse where Jesus is preparing his disciples to be without him. He is leaving and he's saying, I'm going to send the comforter. And Jesus begins to teach them about the nature and the role and the person of that comforter. So most of John's teaching on the Holy Spirit is for later, and we will save it for then. But we are going to mine these verses for what we can learn about the Holy Spirit from verses 37 through 39. Now with those three things in mind, that brings us to our outline. And there are four points to our outline, and we're only going to get to one of them, actually half of one of them today. First, these four features we notice in our text. There is first a problem that is stated, and that is thirst in verse 37. A problem that is stated, that's thirst. Second, we notice that there is a provision for that thirst, and that is the living water, right? The satisfaction for that thirst. 
Thirdly, we notice a promise that is given. If you believe, you will receive this in abundance. That's the promise that's given. And then we notice a person, and that is the Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at the problem, the provision, the promise, and then the person of the Holy Spirit. Those will be our, that's sort of where we're going over the course of the next couple of weeks. Let's first set up the context, verse 37. Read it with me again. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, saying. That's the, that's the context that we're dealing with. Back when we started chapter 7, do you remember we took a whole Sunday just to look at the Feast of Tabernacles? Do you remember that? Well, this is where all of that comes into play. Now, you've forgotten all of that, haven't you? You're like me at Bible college. You, you, as soon as you, you had to pass the test 10 minutes after the service, it went right out of your head. You probably forgot half of what I said. So I'm not going to go over all of that because that would take a whole other Sunday. But what I do want to do is cover enough of the details to sort of color the context of what we're dealing with here. So I'll remind you of some things about the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day feast. you remember that? It was followed, It started with a Sabbath, went for seven days, and then it was followed immediately by another Sabbath. So really it was the, that last day, the eighth day, became incorporated with the first seven. So really all eight days, even though the feast proper was only seven, all eight days became associated with that feast. So there is a bit of a question as to whether or not Jesus, when he stood up on the last day, was standing up on the seventh day or the eighth day. It's somewhat of a technical and important question, but ultimately we can't know. And we'll get into that in just a second. So verses 14, is it verse 14? It is. When it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. That was in the middle of that feast week. So you're talking about probably Tuesday or Wednesday, depending on how John is reckoning days here with the feast. Tuesday or Wednesday, that's when Jesus makes his public debut as it was, go into the temple and begins to teach. So now we get to verse 36 and 37, and we're skipping forward a couple of days to the end of the feast. And this is the last day. This is the great day of the feast. Now, as I said, there's a little bit of question as to whether or not this was the seventh day of the feast proper or the eighth day, which was the Sabbath that followed it. I feel very comfortable saying that because John says this was the last day of the feast, that he is speaking of the seventh of those days, those eight days, the feast proper, and not the eighth day, which was the Sabbath. This is significant because on the eighth day, there was no water-pouring ceremony, which we're going to get into in just a second. On the seventh day, there was a water ceremony associated with the sacrifices that went on in the temple. So you remember the Jews came, the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, eight days, or seven days actually, seven days proper, followed by a Sabbath. That feast was the third and the last time that all Jewish males were required to appear in Jerusalem. It was also the very last feast on the Jewish calendar. There was nothing else until the beginning, until after the new year of the Jewish calendar. This was the last of the feast. So here's how the Jews viewed it. The Jews viewed the Feast of Tabernacles as the culmination of all of their feasting. All of their celebration comes to a head at the Feast of Tabernacles during that one week. This is the end of the whole year. Everything gets wrapped up here. Everything that is to be said and sung and done is done at the Feast of Tabernacles. The last feast of the calendar year, the last feast when all the Jewish males are there, everybody is in Jerusalem. This is the big one. It all comes to a head at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, with the Feast of Tabernacles, there are seven days, and each of these seven days leads up to the last and the great day of the feast. Because the great day of the feast was the day when everybody would press into the temple. There was more people in the temple on the great day of the feast than there was on any previous day of the feast. And all seven days they have been doing sacrifices. They offered a, a specified number of bulls and rams on each of those seven days all the way through to that last day. So in the temple grounds, everybody is pressing in. There is the altar that is there out where everybody can see it, and they put the 
the uh, boughs of the trees over top of the altar to remind them of the tabernacle. So it was decorated with the boughs of the trees. And then when everybody came into the temple, they had the boughs in their hands that they waved. And the Pharisees, of course, specified that it had to be a certain number of boughs from each of these different trees. Boughs? Bows. I did it wrong again, didn't it? No, boughs. Deck the halls with boughs. That's it. Okay. Deck the halls with boughs of holly. Okay, so there is a specified number of tree branches that were supposed to be with each of these boughs. And in the one hand, they held all of the boughs bound together, and they would wave these at certain times during the ceremony. In the left hand, they would uh, carry what was called an etrog, which was a citrus fruit. Now, each of those was symbolic. The boughs were symbolic of the tabernacle and the dwelling of God in the temple, and it was a praise for God, and it reminded the people of when God dwelt with them in the wilderness wanderings. The etrog, which was the citrus fruit, was a reminder to them of God's provision for them, the fruit and the abundance that God provided, and it pointed back to the manna, It pointed back to God's provision of them when he was with them. And so they would gather into the temple, and then, listen, they would begin to sing the great Hallel, Psalms 113, 14, 115, 116, 117, and 118. And all of this singing was going on, and at certain points the people would wave the boughs of of tree limbs over their heads and hold up that fruit, and they would sing this together and and praise the Lord at this time. Then there was an appointed time when an appointed priest would leave the temple during the singing and he would go out to the pool of Siloam, which was outside the temple, and he would draw water out of the pool of Siloam and bring it in through the water gate into the midst of the temple. And then at the culmination of this entire service, while the people are praising God for the expectation of the Messiah, praising God for his salvation, praising God for all that he has provided, they would pour out the water over top of the sacrifice. Now the water was symbolic of a number of things. This whole thing was a pageantry of prayer. It was the acting out of a prayer service is what it was. And the pageantry of prayer, the pouring out of the water, stood for this. The water would remind the Jews of a number of different things. First, it would remind them in their minds of when the the people came out of the land of Egypt and they were thirsty in the wilderness, and what did God do to satisfy their thirst? He told Moses, strike the rock, and the water came out of the rock. And again, on another occasion, he told Moses, speak to the rock, but he didn't see to speak to it, he struck the rock out of anger, disobeyed God, but God still provided water out of that rock. So do you remember the Hillel Psalm that we sung at the beginning, the Psalm 114, which ended with God brings water out, a pool of water out of the flint stone. That is what uh, that pouring out of water reminded them of. The rock, the satisfaction of that physical craving in the wilderness, but God providing that pool of water for the people to drink out of. It also reminded the people of all that God had provided by means of rain for the last year, which resulted in the harvest. And it was a testimony of God's faithfulness in the harvest. And then it was a prayer for the pouring out of more rain for the coming harvest year that God might water them because they lived in an arid climate. And then fourth, it reminded them or stood for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which the Jews believed that the Messiah would initiate when the Messiah came. In fulfillment of certain Old Testament prophecies, and we're going to look at that in the coming weeks, because Jesus quotes the prophets later on. As the scripture says, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Well, the Jews expected that when the Messiah came, as part of the Messiah's ministry, he would pour out the Holy Spirit upon the peoples. So that's what the pouring out of the water symbolized, all of that. And so the priest would come in and the people are singing and they would finish up with Psalm 118, verse 25, which says, We beseech you, O Lord, to save. Do save and do send prosperity, O Lord. Psalm 118, verse 25. And as they sang that that psalm, begging God to save, and begging God to send the Messiah and bring the Messiah, they would pour out the water, which was a symbol of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the coming of the Messiah. And when all of that was done, the singing would cease, the celebration would cease, and there would be a quiet time of reflection. 
as all of the, the sound and the stillness came to a screeching halt. It is at that time that most people believe Jesus stood in the temple and cried out saying, If you thirst, come to me. And he who believes in me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. You see how appropriate those words are? It is not even possible to overstate the significance of that invitation and that statement. It's not even possible to overstate it. While they are praying for salvation, Jesus stands in the temple and says, You want salvation? Come to me. While they are remembering the dwelling of God among them, Jesus was standing in the temple, having told them that He is the divine Son, having told them that the Father sent Him. He is standing in the temple as the tabernacling of God among men. And as they are crying out for God's provision, Jesus is offering His provision to them. They are crying out for the pouring of the Holy Spirit out upon them through the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, if you want the Holy Spirit, if you want the Messiah, you come to Me. You want those blessings that this water symbolizes? Then come to Me. The significance of it cannot be overstated. It is as if Jesus stood up in the temple and said, everything that you are praying for, everything that you are asking for, everything that you are anticipating, everything that you are desiring, I offer to you. Just come. Receive Me. Believe upon me. Leave behind the substance, uh, the symbolism. All of this is symbolism. Everything you have done, it's all symbolic. I am the substance of it. I am the fulfillment of it. I am the core of this. Come to me and receive it. And the, the opposite is also true. If you reject me, you will forfeit all of the blessings that you have been praying and asking for. Isn't that significant? That's his invitation. Now that sets up the context for us and leads to us to the first point, which is, the problem that is stated in verse 37, and that is thirst. Look at verse 37. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now that is a that is an appropriate analogy in a lot of different ways. It was familiar to the Jews, the idea of thirst. They lived in an arid climate. They were dependent upon rains at certain times if they were to eat anything or to drink anything, to have their wells filled. They were dependent upon rain. Rain was... Rain was not abundant like it has been here for the last eight months. Rain is not abundant there. They did, they lived on it. They depended upon it. They prayed for it. They needed it badly. And they couldn't just go to a faucet and open up a faucet and turn on water and get clean, clear water whenever they wanted to, like we do. They understood the concept of thirsting. They knew what it meant to thirst. And Jesus is obviously drawing a parallel or an analogy to the water pouring ceremony that was going on in the temple. And he is speaking not in terms of physical thirst, but he is using an analogy of spiritual thirst. Do you thirst? And he's not talking physically, obviously. He's talking spiritually. If you thirst or long for the things that you are praying for, then come to me. And he's using thirst as an analogy of spiritual thirst. Now those of you here who have come to Christ and you have felt spiritual thirst, you know just how appropriate that analogy is. Do you not? There's something about thirst. Thirst is a physical craving that we feel that is really a symptom of something different or greater, right? When your body needs water, you thirst. And the thirst is an indication that something is wrong in your whole body. Have you ever thought of how, how much of a blessing the craving of thirst actually is? You ever thought about that? Man, thirst is a blessing, is it not? Because if I didn't experience physical thirst, I would never know that my body needed water. I would just have to set a timer of some sort to remind me. 
And I need to drink so much every day. Because I would not know that if I didn't experience thirst. And if you don't experience thirst and you don't drink enough water, then what does your body do? Your body starts to shut down. Your organs start to shut down. And they start to shut down in order to preserve water. And they begin pulling water out of the less vital organs in order to use in the more vital organs like the brain. And your body begins to shut down and dehydrate. If you didn't experience physical thirst, you would never know that to go fetch a drink of water. And thirst is a a physical craving that we experience. And it is a consuming physical craving. Have you ever been really, really thirsty? I mean, to the point where you feel like your tongue is beginning to swell in the back of your mouth and close off your airway. Have you ever been that thirsty? Where your mouth just is dry and you cannot make your mouth water at all? And you actually have to start thinking of things that you would like to eat in order to make your mouth water, to get some some sort of water in your mouth? Have you ever been that thirsty? When you are really that thirsty, you know what your mind is consumed with? Water. Water. All you want is water. You don't want anything else. You want water. And you cannot rest until you get water. You can't think of anything else. It's just water. You're thinking about when you can get water, how you can get water, where you can get water, when am I going to get water. All you want is water. And you know what? When you thirst like that, no substitute will do. You don't want bread. You don't want candy bars. You really could care less. You would take it, but you could care less about fruit juice and pop and milk and a milkshake. What do you really want? You just want water. When you're really thirsty, what does your body crave? None of the substitutes, you just want water. And after you drink two or three glasses of water, then you might think of drinking a soda pop, or then you might think of drinking fruit juice or a glass of milk, or a milkshake might sound good. But when you really thirst, no substitute will do. You're not, somebody offers you steak or money, you're not interested in any of those, are you? You don't care if you ever see another steak again as long as you live. As long as you can get a clean glass of water, you'll be satisfied with that. It is a consuming, consuming craving. It is a blessing. It is a consuming craving. And no substitute will do. Now look how analogous that is and how much of a perfect analogy that is to spiritual thirst. Spiritual thirst is a consuming craving. When Jesus says, he who thirsts, or if anyone thirsts, he is describing somebody who has come to the conviction of their sin. They have understood the holiness of God. They have understood their sin, the righteousness of God, eternal judgment. They understand, feel the weight of an, a quickened and awakened conscience, and they know, I need to be forgiven. I need to be forgiven of my sin. I'm hungering and thirsting after righteousness, which I don't have, that I need to stand before God. And they are craving the satisfaction of that thirst. And that thirst, is it, it, it consumes them. People who thirst in this way are consumed with finding something to satisfy their spiritual longing. They want life because they're dead. And they want appeasement for their conscience. They want their conscience clean because it's killing them. And every sin is like the beating down of the sun. Every sin that is committed is like the, the conscience is inflamed again and it reminds you of just how much you have sinned and just how much wrath you deserve. That is the state that Jesus is describing. When you come to thirst after that righteousness and you hunger for it and you need to be cleansed of it, it consumes you. And you quickly realize that no substitute will do. Because when you started to thirst like that, you probably, like a lot of people, sought to satisfy or satiate that craving with a hundred different things with pleasure and prosperity and possessions and drink and drugs and everything under the sun. People try and satiate that desire, but they find that it never quite satisfies because no substitute will do. What they really want is water and what they really long for is water and they're grasping and looking for water and they don't even know it. 
It is a consuming, consuming desire for the satisfaction of a spiritual need that somebody is made to feel. And do you realize how much of a blessing it is to thirst spiritually? Do you realize that's a blessing? How many people are there who actually thirst spiritually? It is a blessed few. A blessed few. Now, all men should thirst, right? We live in dying and dead bodies. We live under the the constant curse of the judgment of God. All of us, everyone who is born, has this spiritual need. But do all men feel that spiritual need? No, you go out into the highways and byways of life, and you start talking to people, and you will soon find out these people have no idea of their true spiritual need. They seem completely oblivious to the judgment that they are under. They don't seem to thirst after the things that I thirst after. And even though they should thirst because they're under God's judgment and they need forgiveness, they don't thirst. They don't feel it at all. What do unbelievers thirst after? Everything except forgiveness. Everything except life. They want pleasure. They want toys. They want novelties. They want riches. They want fame. They want popularity. They want recognition. They want to be worshipped. They want to be loved. They want everything under the sun. They hunger and thirst for everything under the sun except for the one thing that they should thirst for, and that is salvation and forgiveness. Isn't that a testimony to the depravity and the wickedness of man? Is it not true that the Scripture says we are asleep and we are dead and we are blind, all of that? Because unbelieving man doesn't even understand that he should be thirsting. But he's not. It is a blessed few that are actually made to feel their spiritual thirst and come to an understanding of the spiritual thirst and hunger after righteousness. It's a perfect analogy. It's an analogy that Jesus used back with the woman at the well. Do you remember that? If a man drinks of this water, he'll thirst again. Drink of the water which I will give him, he will never thirst. John chapter 6, it's an analogy that Jesus used in verse 35. He who believes in me, I'm the bread of life. He will never hunger again. He who trusts in me, he will never thirst again. It was a common analogy that Jesus used to say, to point to himself as the satisfaction of their longings and their desires. Now look at the breadth of that, now look at the breadth of the invitation. Not only is it a perfect analogy, but look who the invitation is given to. If anyone thirsts. This I thought was beautiful. Jesus does not say, if anyone except those Pharisees who have been trying to kill me for the last week. Doesn't say that, doesn't limit this at all, does he? He says, if anyone thirsts. Not anyone except for the scribes or the temple police who have been trying to arrest me. Or not anyone except for those who earlier in the chapter said I was a false prophet and leading the people astray. Jesus doesn't limit it at all. It is open to his enemies, even the most hostile of his enemies, no matter what their background was, no matter what sin they had engaged on, in, no matter what hostility they had expressed to him up to this point. He is opening up and saying to them, if you thirst, that is the only qualification, if you thirst, come to me. No special qualifications, no dividing into groups of people. It has nothing to do with your past or your background. The question is this. Do you thirst? If you thirst, you will find satisfaction in Jesus Christ. So here's what you have to do. You must come to Him. And you come to Him, and you believe upon Him, and that will be sufficient. He will have more than enough to satisfy your thirst and your longing. There's an error called hyper-Calvinism. Hyper-Calvinism, which teaches that you should not and cannot offer the gospel to anybody but the elect. You have to limit your gospel offers and proclamation only to the elect. Now, how are you supposed to know who the elect are is beyond me. That's the error of hyper-Calvinism. And they would argue, since the Father did not give everybody to the Son, and since nobody can come to the Son unless the Father draws them, and the Father does not draw all men perfectly, and He's not going to raise all men up, therefore we should not offer legitimately the gospel to those whom the Father does not intend to save. 
And so they would say, you, even in your gospel proclamation, you must limit it only to those who can legitimately grab hold of the blessings of that gospel proclamation. That is a damnable heresy and a horrible lie. That's not what Jesus does here. It's not what he did in any of the invitations that we've read through the Gospel of John. He just simply says, if anyone. And the Gospel is to be proclaimed to every creature. That is what Jesus did. Open invitation. If you thirst, come. That is what the apostles did. Open invitation. Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? Come to Christ. Repent and believe, and he will satisfy that spiritual thirst. And if you and I are to be faithful, then we must preach the Gospel to every creature and not limit the audience based upon anything that we perceive. We simply need to declare the message to any and to all and say to them, if you thirst, come to the Son. He will satisfy your thirst. That is the gospel proclamation, and that's what we have to be faithful to do. To anyone. To anyone. Now let's close with answering two questions. Two questions that sort of come up. First, why is it that unbelievers do not experience this thirst or feel this thirst? Why is it unbelievers don't feel this thirst? The one word answer to that question is sin. You see, sin does two things. It increases the reason why they should thirst, and it numbs and satiates in a very false way the thirst that they should have. Because they are dead in their trespasses and sins, they are blind to their spiritual problem, and they do not experience the hunger and thirst after righteousness until something happens. Something has to happen to quicken or to make alive that thirst. Why do unbelievers not thirst? Why is it somebody can be just up to their ears in sin and iniquity and they do not feel a hunger and a desire for eternal life? They don't care if they're dead. They don't care if they're under judgment. They don't get the, the sad condition of their soul. They give no thought at all to the care and comforts of their own eternal well-being. Why is that? It's sin. It's iniquity. Sin blinds them. Sin promises them satisfaction and just brings them more into bondage and more into a condition of wrath and it numbs the thirst so that they can't even feel it in their own deadened condition. The second question, if you have come to Christ, why did you thirst and not somebody else? How did you come to thirst? You see, you, you cannot come to heaven or salvation unless you first thirst. That's why it's blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The first step toward heaven is realizing I deserve hell. And I have to thirst and know my condition before I will appropriate a cure. So why is it that I thirsted and somebody else did not? What, has ca what caused me to thirst? Is it something in me? You know the answer to this question. It's not. If no man can come to the Son, unless the Father who sent him draws him, John 6.44 and John 6.65, how is it now that Jesus can say, come to me, when he has already said in the previous chapter, you cannot come? What is it that made me thirst? What is it that made you thirst? You know what started that thirsting? That is the work of the Holy Spirit of God when he quickens the heart of one who has been given by the Father to the Son. And the Spirit of God is the one who creates in us that thirst and draws us through that thirst to seek after God. Because without that, no man would seek after God. No man does. No man can come. And no man does seek. So something must happen to draw us to Him. The Spirit of God is the one who quickens the conscience and alerts us to our lost condition. He creates within us the thirst so that we might pursue and seek a satisfaction for that thirst and come to Christ. The grace that makes us to thirst 
is the same grace that enables us to come and be satisfied at the fountain of living water. Does that make sense? Now, we've only got halfway through the first part, which is the thirst. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And I would simply offer you this. If you're sitting here this morning and you have never trusted Christ for salvation, you're not a believer, I would say this to you. Do you thirst after righteousness? If you do, come to the Son. He will satisfy that thirst, and you will never hunger and thirst again. That is his promise to you. That is his promise to you. And we will pick up the what it means to come to Christ and the blessings that accrue to those who do come. We will look at that next week. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you that you, by your by your grace, have made us to thirst after you. We were dead in our sins like others. We were lost in our trespasses, blind, oblivious to the state of our soul. But you, by a work of your Spirit, to the glory of your Son, have caused us to long and to hunger and thirst after righteousness, that we might be filled and that we might be fed. And it is a blessing to us that you did this, that you alerted us, that you brought us to know our needs so that we might seek a remedy and a cure for it in Christ. Thank you for what you have done by your grace, and it is truly all to your glory. We thank you in the name of your Son, who is the fountain of living waters for us, and the one who gives us satisfaction for that longing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.